Shame. 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 Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Laura Samara Sands. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. Another episode of Fishers of Men. We are in Sissy Rogers' Pasadena office. Sissy, thank you so much for joining us. We are talking about a really great topic today that has been on our hearts for a while. We wanted to talk about shame and shame culture. First of all, we'd like to have Sissy introduce herself. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. So I came to be somewhat of an expert on shame culture through probably two avenues, one through my own personal experience with having been a human being and living with shame in my own life, but Mm -hmm. secondly, through being a therapist and sitting with people who were dealing with a lot of shame. I trained at Fuller Seminary as a psychotherapist and started a private practice in the early 90s and found myself working with a lot of women, young women. Mm -hmm. I was a young woman. I'd get the young women clients. Mm -hmm. And across the board, Many of them, whether they were full-blown eating disorder clients or not, had some issues with body image and security around their physical appearance, and certainly a lot of sexual struggles, especially for Christian women, around how do I even begin to integrate that. So over the years, I've been a therapist, and I've taught at Azusa Pacific in their marriage and family therapy program, taught human sexuality for about seven or eight years to MFT students, mm-hmm. and then have just gotten opportunities to speak on sexuality and sexual health at different uh, churches in the area. Um, and then just a couple of years ago, started a, non- a nonprofit called Alive and Well Women. And we're really about three things, uh, helping women be more connected to their bodies in all of the goodness and all of the struggles, but to really take ownership of our bodies and be in our bodies. And then secondly, empowerment for women to find our voices and, you know, fulfill our calls. Mm -hmm. And then third, the focus on love, that we really believe that the thing that we all, we were all created by love, for love, to love. Mm -hmm. And love is really what heals shame. And that's what we need to get back to is really connecting to our own belovedness Mm -hmm. and and how much God loves us and how we are loved. And even in those moments where we're feeling shame, which is inevitable as human beings, we're always going to have to face that because it's part of our limited existence, but that we always have that center point to come back to, um, knowing we're loved by God, the creator created us out of love. So, so that's what, what I am up to now is uh, working with a nonprofit, leading retreats, workshops around issues of embodiment. Um, we have a mindful eating workshop coming up next week, you know, topics of sexuality. We would like to do a, a retreat on sexuality maybe in the next year. 
I would love for us to be a part of that. Yeah. 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 Well, well we, I have a partner that I've done a retreat called uh, From from Shame to Grace, The mm. Soul and Sexuality. Yes. Um, Actually, so, how I first yeah. learned about you was at Ecclesia about three mm-hmm. and a half years ago. There was a Sexuality in the Soul, I mm-hmm. guess, seminar, yeah. I guess you would call mm-hmm. it, over multiple weekends. And it was packed. Yeah. There was so many people from our church mm-hmm. just packing that little cafe and wanting to talk about sex because for some reason we just don't do it enough within the church. There's a stigma about talking about it. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it is shameful or it's bad or it's dirty. Exactly. And that's one of the things that really inspired us or convinced us there is a market for this podcast actually. (laughs) It's just seeing the sheer overwhelming response Mm -hmm. to people just wanting to discuss it. Yeah. Well, how, how about we start with this question how do we get over and heal from shame? Not just if you messed up, whatever that may mean in your brain, but there is a lot more to shame around identity of all kinds, especially in the church. Not being perfect or good enough, including body image, as well as our connection with self-worth for both men and women. Mm-hmm. There is so many ways for us to feel shame. Mm-hmm. How, are the, how are ways for us to, like you say, embrace love and to mm-hmm. embrace the Father's love? God's love for us. How do we do that practically in in our daily lives? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll answer that question, but then I want to come back to something else. Please. I think the two powerful tools are cultural critique because we live in a shame-based culture. Yes. And capitalism is based on aspirational marketing (laughs) that is all about making us feel bad (laughs) so that we'll buy their products and we'll feel better about ourselves. So whether that's the car, the clothes, the... So right. Yeah. So we live in a culture, a capitalistic culture that's, I think, all about selling based on inadequacy and helping people feel bad about themselves. So we have to become really mindful and aware of how we're immersed in this distorted view of reality it's what paul when uh, the scriptures talk about do not be conformed to the world Mm -hmm. you know the world is always trying to squeeze us into its mold and so we have to recognize that in the culture and so and also to give ourselves grace because because we live in that kind of culture we're going to continually be feeling moments of shame and inadequacy, even just looking at social media, right? Yeah. Um, that's a, a huge form. So that's the first thing. And we could talk more about that, but you can learn about cultural critique and just becoming media, media literacy, learning oh, yeah. to really think about what we're consuming and the messages we're hearing in the entertainment we're seeing or in the advertising or in social media. And then the second thing is really about what, is called within the Eastern traditions, mindfulness, but within our own Christian tradition, contemplative practices. Yeah. I can't remember the poet Naomi. I can't remember her name, but she, she says to contemplate is to take a long loving look. Mm. And if we could develop a contemplative stance toward our lives where we take a long loving look at our experience without judgment, but with a more curiosity and openness and acceptance and love toward ourselves, that is a powerful tool for dealing with all of the dissonance we feel as humans, whether that's emotions that are uncomfortable 
or whether it's shame or whatever it is, when we feel off center, like something's not okay, we're really, I think, taught by the rational problem solving culture, well, then you need to fix it, you know, and let's, what's the solution? Or there must be something wrong with me that I feel this way, but that is not helpful. So we have to learn to take a a more contemplative, mindful, non-judgmental way of looking at our inner experience of shame and of all the feelings that we feel in life. And those two skills, cultural critique, media literacy, and then the second of mindfulness or contemplative way of looking at our experience are really the way I would kind of characterize the set of what do I need to do to learn? Because one is dealing with creating a filter, a way of dealing with the external information that's coming in. Mm-hmm. And then the second is creating a tool for managing and working with my inner experience in a more loving, effective way. Can I back up for a moment and just ask, when we talk about shame, what would you define that as? I think we all kind of operate on the assumption of what we know, that, yeah. what, what that means and implies for our lives. But yeah. you, who is an expert in this area, mm-hmm. can you just, for our audience, explain what that would mean in the mm-hmm. context of what we're talking about? Now? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll refer to two experts who've written books on this. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Brene Brown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says something along the lines that shame is the painful feeling of not being worthy, not being lovable. So that's one way of thinking about it. Kurt Thompson, who is a Christian psychiatrist and has written a fabulous book called The Soul of Shame that I highly recommend, Mm -hmm. he says it's the feeling of being limited and unable to meet the demands of the circumstances. I'm not enough Mm -hmm. to deal with this situation. And the reason I like that is because of my own experience of shame, and I think a lot of what I have teased out working with clients, is that it's not always that, oh, flood of shame of I'm not, I'm not lovable, I, I don't, you know, it's not that big, it's more subtle. Yeah. So, and shame is actually, in some forms, a healthy alert system that tells us we're not enough. And says, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't try and sing in front of all these people because, you know, (laughs) I really don't have that great voice. And I feel beef called upon. So I think shame, I like the idea of shame is that feeling of being not enough to meet Mm -hmm. the circumstances I'm in. Mm -hmm. I would call it, and if I think about it experientially, I would describe shame as a flood of undifferentiated emotional energy. Uh, It's just this flooding of sensations and affect that leaves us feeling undone. Mm. And the thing it does is that neurologically in our brains, it actually disables our ability to reflect on our experience and think clearly. Mm. So if Kurt Thompson talks a lot about the neurobiology of shame. And in our brains, the part of us that can actually think clearly is our prefrontal orbital cortex at the front of our brains. It's the wise mind, the executive brain. And when we're flooded with affect, we actually, that whole function is disabled. And so, you know, those moments where you're feeling shame, it's like in that moment, you need, you want to do something to get rid of the shame, but you can't actually think of anything helpful or (laughs) positive because you're disabled actually and it's a brain thing that, that your brain can't think 
clearly in that moment of feeling ashamed. So those are three different ways of defining it as that feeling, painful feeling of not being lovable or worthy, the feeling of not being enough to meet the demands of a circumstance, or a flood of undifferentiated emotional energy would be my descriptor because that's how it feels to me when I feel ashamed. Um, It's not even, I can't even think, I don't even have the clarity to say it's that I don't feel loved or that I'm not enough. It's just this immediate like, ugh. feeling. Yeah. 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 Self-loathing. I mean, that plays very well into what we want to talk about specifically, sexuality, body Mm -hmm. image. I think those have obviously played into the media and to commercialism and capitalism for sure. Yeah. Playing on our vulnerability and our lack of or our perceived lack of of anything. Mm -hmm. But how do you then take shame and feelings of shame or look on your life in a contemplative way and tease out mm-hmm. the actions and the choices that you yeah. regret or that mm-hmm. you, you recognize like were not, you know, like if we're talking about body shame, you know, like, well, yesterday I overate and that didn't contribute to my goals for yeah. myself, you yeah. know, or, you know, with sexuality and, you know. Who knows? <laughs> so, many. Yeah. so so how can you take an honest look and, and mm-hmm. approach those in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Well, well, that brings us back to what I wanted to say at the beginning about, <laughs> oh, you know, how do yeah. we get over shame? Yeah. It's, it's realizing that shame isn't something we're going to get over in this life, that mm. we're always going to have moments because shame is a result of being vulnerable and being human and being limited. Mm. So we're going to feel bad. And in its kind of best form, shame is saying, yeah, yeah, that wasn't a great choice. That wasn't what I ideally aspire to. And hmm, how can I think through this and do something different next time? But the problem is that shame actually, usually we, we don't do that in the moment of shame. We actually do the very thing we hate again. And then <laughs> right. we go eat the chips or we go drink the alcohol or we go and look at porn or you know, we turn to our survival strategies. So I think to be human is to be vulnerable. Shame is going to be part of our lives because we're always going to run up against things we're, we're at a loss as to how to handle. And three, all of those things we typically think we feel ashamed about are actually the things we do to survive and cope with the feeling of shame or other inner dissonance that we don't know how to deal with. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So so it's like, you know, if I'm feeling bad because I made the choice to look at porn or to go to my coping strategy, eat, drink, be merry, stay on Facebook for hours at a time, all these <laughs> different things that people do to avoid their discomfort mm. is to recognize that those aren't the problem. The problem not even the problem, but the, the root is this inner experience of the discomfort of being human suffering. It's really our inner suffering, our emotions, our insecurities, our limitedness. Uh, there's a wonderful psychologist, James Finley, who says that there are two forms of suffering. There's horizontal suffering, which is circumstances in life. And then there's vertical suffering, which is the loss of our sense of our belovedness or our preciousness as human beings. And that that is really the core of shame is when we're, we're disconnected from our preciousness as human beings, as God's beloved, we're always needing to come back to a steady state 
of I am loved. And so I think that's in those moments where we're flooded with shame or inner dissonance or uncomfortableness, what we really need, Dan Siegel is a psychiatrist who talks about the brain in terms of the, the prefrontal orb, orbital cortex being like your lid. Mm-hmm. And you know, when people blow their tops or flip wow, their lids, yeah. it's like, it's actually literally happening in your brain is That's you're great. flipping your lid, you're losing your connection between your emotional and survival self and your wise executive self. And so in those moments where we begin to feel like our lids are getting loose and the our blood's boiling, the emotions are rising, we're starting to feel some inklings of that flood of emotion, that's when we need to stop, take a deep breath, find our way back to that calm state of peace, which I would associate with knowing our belovedness. It, we may not always feel love like yeah, we yeah. think about typically, but that state of calm, steadiness, and, and a big part of that is vulnerability and reaching out for help. So I think a big part of managing that is creating community with others who you feel you can be honest with. So in those moments where I make the, the choice that I regret, it's like, who are the people I can call and say, hey, I'm feeling offline. I need help. Will you pray for me? Will you, you know, talk me down? Did that answer your question? Yeah. And that's actually, I think, really interesting thinking about the early church and how confession was public, mm. like to the entire community mm. and how, you know, with our modern eyes, we might look at that and think like, oh, how horrible. Yeah. Public <laughs> shaming. Yeah. Public shaming. But in a way, when you put it, when thinking about what you just said, how what a great way to build community mm-hmm. and actually you know be held accountable mm-hmm. um knowing that you would have to stand up in front of mm-hmm. everyone and you were accountable to your community mm-hmm. and... although that i mean that is terrifying <laughs> in a way but i feel like in a closed community or a smaller community say back then whatever yeah. that means yeah Versus today, specifically oh, yeah, today, today would be really terrifying. Yeah. Like it's out of the 2,000 people. <laughs> on the what? monitor, on the front. And, yeah. and I do wonder about... The scarlet letter. Yeah. Right. I mean, I do wonder about the loss of yeah. that mm-hmm. feeling of having... I mean, in our modern churches, we have small groups or community groups yeah. or life yeah. groups, right? Um, so I feel like that would make up for whatever the small mm-hmm. church would have been. But... Yeah, this this idea of having so many people. I mean, I've been going to Ecclesia for, what, six years, and I still meet new people mm-hmm. that I'm like, oh, you've been going here for, like, five years? I have never seen... It's yeah. it's kind of embarrassing, but uh, the, the thought of coming up to a church where it's so transient, like, people yeah. are coming in and out of L.A. all the time, like, how can you? Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, the solution is the small group model, which I actually really love, mm-hmm. but... How interesting. I never thought of it that way, like the public confessional, but in the context right. of a smaller. Well, yeah. And that's, and I'm yeah. thinking, and you know, closer knit, yeah. well, and we're really talking like, we're lucky if I have one or two people in my life at any given time yeah. that I can trust at that level. So I think this is why so many people end up in therapy yeah, because we don't have that kind of community, maybe because of exactly what you're saying, Laura, that we're not living in in these kind of organic, small, you know, people were living in each other's living rooms. I mean, people didn't have Mm -hmm. the isolation we have. So Mm. we're growing up with, and I think about the generations coming up Mm -hmm. who spend so much time online, isolated, 
living on computers and oh, not yeah. creating relationships. And, and, oh, yeah. and there's even, um, you know, more and more research and there's um, specialty like centers getting established for dealing with online addiction and social media, you know, these things that are going to make us even less able to form authentic, vulnerable relationships than we are now. So if we think we're, you know, in our era, the three of us as young adult, middle adult people struggle to find those relationships. Think about the kids coming up and how much that's all they've ever known. Yeah. Renee Brown's talks about stretch mark friends. Hmm. Um, people that you'd feel comfortable sharing yeah. your stretch marks with. Oh, and great. as a woman with stretch marks, I appreciate that because it's that naked and unashamed thing. Yeah. And so to, to really know and cultivate relationships and to have a couple of those in your life at any given time, or somebody you can actually call on the phone, not just send a text, but send a text if you need, yeah. but, or even better meet in person. Right. And, and say, you know, this is what I'm struggling with. I'm having a shame moment. Mm-hmm. I think she talks about knowing your shame triggers and being aware of learning what is shame feel like in my life? What are the sensations and feelings and how does it show up so that I can know when it's happening? Because what often happens when shame occurs is we start to create a story about ourselves. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I'm starting to feel, um, here's an example. I was teaching a course recently and I had a specifically asked one of the participants who's a teacher and does this kind of work to give me feedback. And when I got an email from her during the course, giving me the very feedback I wanted and I read over and I'm like, oh yeah, oh, that's really good. Yeah, that's okay. Good. You know, so immediately my thought was, oh, this is really helpful feedback. But then what happened? It started doing a number on me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I really, yeah. yeah, I'm not good enough. And oh, that I really, so that perfectionistic kind of mm. thinking that I have to have it all together and everything has to be exactly the way it should be. And there's no, I should have the course perfect from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, I've not taught this course before. That's why I'm asking for feedback. But <laughs> a yet, part yeah. of me tells me yeah. it should be perfect already. Right. And yeah. so that knowing that I was able to interrupt it. And I actually, I called somebody, I called one of my stretch mark friends and I said, Hey, this is what's happening. And I just need to name it. And so a lot of dealing with shame is to just name it to ourselves, to observe it, to notice it, to name it, go, Oh, it's shame. And then to tell another person the right, the true story. And have that person help us tell ourselves the truth that, of course, this is exactly what you wanted. And of course, it's still needing improvement and will always need improvement. That's the other thing. You know, we, we have this idea that somehow we're going to arrive at the end point. Right. <laughs> We've got it all together. Right. Yeah. And right. that, that just I think there's something deeply wired in us that knows we were made for perfection and harmony and all is one and all is good. We were made in the image of God. Yeah. But in this human life, we're not going to get there. So if yeah. you ever reach that point where everything's good and you're perfect and you're complete, <laughs> it means you're dead. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, I wanted to back up to something you just talked about, triggers, shame triggers. Mm-hmm. Can you give some examples for those that may be listening and just kind of wondering like, oh, what are my shame triggers? What? Would those mm, be? How do you identify them? How would you identify mm-hmm. them? 
Well, you identify them through your experience. Like for me, a shame trigger is definitely performance. Mm. So that idea that I need to, as I just said, Mm -hmm. have, have it, have what I offer perfect going out the gate. So that's a, a shame trigger for me. For, for many women, um, I think Brene Brown's research shows that 70% of the women, the number one shame trigger is body image. Mm. So body image appearance. The number one trigger for men is weakness, appearing weak or incompetent. Another common shame triggers are occupational success, which would be related to performance. Parenting, there's a lot of you know, yes. moms and dads that have shame around parenting issues and not being enough mm-hmm. around dating and relationships is another shame trigger oh, yeah. for a lot of people. I think knowing just you start paying attention, paying attention to our experience is huge. Yeah. You know, scripture talks a lot about paying attention, um, noticing. Mm-hmm. And so learning to be your own expert on your own experience and, you know, keeping a list of what are my shame triggers, where are the places shame is likely to show up. And then when it shows up, not to give it too much power to just go, oh yeah, there's shame. Yeah. It sounds like all all of all those triggers you talked about, it has to do with comparing to other people Mm -hmm. or living up to something that Mm -hmm. they feel is the ideal thing that they feel they should reach. Yeah. And as you said, course we're never going to be that mm-hmm. perfection or that yeah that perfect model for parenting or otherwise yeah so that's a good segue into how does the media like from films to tv to mm-hmm. instagram or social media generally play into shaping how we think about our self-worth or value mm-hmm. as a functioning or non-functioning member of society because mm-hmm. I mean, it's everywhere mm-hmm. i mean we live in la the capital yeah. of entertainment yeah, yeah. well but the way I think about it in terms of identity development is that we we can't be what we can't see. You know, it's like that idea which we talk a lot about with women and power right now in the conversation around gender inequality in power positions in media and entertainment and mm-hmm. corporate and government structures. But we learn about who we are by observing the people around us. And so I think what goes on with us as we grow is we we internalize what we're seeing in the culture as the norm yeah and then we compare ourselves to that and we immediately see we don't even ha- we don't even think about it it's unconscious mm-hmm. so it pays a huge role in shaping identity and creating shame-based identities in us as we grow up but it's so ubiquitous right that it's we're not even conscious of it. Yeah, we're the we're the goldfish swimming in the water. Exactly. We don't realize that it's water because it's just yeah. a normal state. Yeah. Which I I think it's I appreciate you saying earlier about media literacy just mm-hmm. being a, one way to combat mm-hmm. these feelings of shame and just realizing that oh I don't need to look like Gal Gadot yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, or ever, or ever, <laughs> or ever. Yeah. She not even sometimes. Yeah. Not even sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that and the, and the, and parents really have a huge role to play in this mm-hmm. to be teaching kids from an early age, and I think the church is this is where the church has failed in so many ways that 
kids need to be equipped to listen to their own experience, especially around sexuality, Mm. and also learn how to think about and make choices about cultural norms. And I think the church would do a great service to be teaching media literacy to children and teenagers and make that a part of our curriculum. I remember years ago, I had a a teenage client, 14-year-old girl, and came from a very conservative church. And she was having some struggles. But one of the big issues was she was wanting to listen to this music that her mom did not want her to listen to. And when I you know, suggested to the mom that perhaps a way to deal with this would be to sit down and listen to the music together and have the mom, you know, ask the child about the values and what did she like about that song and what did she not like about to try and use it to create a conversation. It was like the mom was just like, oh, no, no, she just needs to not listen to it. Mm. And I think with parenting, you have to help kids internalize the values you want them to grow up with. Yeah. And you don't do that by just saying, don't do it because I say so, exactly. which yeah. I think so many of my peers have experienced yeah. that with their parents. Yeah. You, you were talking about normalizing things that are just natural for us, such as, for example, sexuality, when you were talking mm-hmm. about the, the teenager that wanted to just listen to this music, yeah. in that same way, you can talk about different things, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about particularly like sexuality, for yeah. example, when it's just this thing that you grow up with, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, because the Bible says this and that and that, just fine, of course, scripture is definitely a way to internalize this if you're believing in it and you're learning how to grow up with Jesus and all those things. But, but also a great way to feel shame when but you also don't her up. A great way to feel, well, this is why I'm so appreciative of Paul. He was so vulnerable with saying, I don't do the thing that I know I should do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I do, I the, do the thing I hate. Yeah. And, yeah. So human. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to skip ahead to a question that I had about sexual beings that we are. How what do we do with all of that before I do then, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think it would do well for parents to, I mean, it will always be awkward, I guess, but particularly oh. with sexuality, normalizing it and yeah. understanding that we're, we are going to be curious, you know, even from childhood. Infancy, infancy you know, it starts. Yeah. Before in utero, right? you know, little boys, or baby boys are having erections and little girls are having vaginal lubrication, yes. you know? And, and I think... Can I jump in? Please, okay, please. so your, your comment about it, maybe it will always be awkward, but that actually is only, that's a reflection of the parent. Mm. So if a parent is uncomfortable with their own sexuality, yeah. they can't do anything healthy with their kids. Right. So the best thing parents can do is learn to be, become more comfortable with their own sexuality. And if you feel comfortable in your own skin, And with your own pleasure and you've learned how to regulate your own sexual energies in a healthy way, you're going to be able to help your kid do it. But you can't pass on something you don't have. And I think that's that's why parents revert to the, the, oh, don't do it. And the Bible says don't, so therefore don't. And then leaves you ill-equipped to deal with the very natural biological functions that are going on every day, every, every hour. I have a good story for this is actually Teen Vogue. My husband sent me, who's one of my my chief researcher on everything, because he's much (laughs) more on the internet than I am. 
he sent me um, a link to an article by D- Teen Vogue mm-hmm. for teenage girls, how to masturbate if you have a vagina. And <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, because of the sexual education right. work I do. And it's a great article, you know, because it's explaining to a young girl that her body's different, that she has a clitoris, not a penis. Mm -hmm. And it actually goes into describing where your clitoris is and where your G-spot is and how to find it. And in a very just normalizing it way. And I'm like, that is awesome. I think that is great. It is awesome because all the sexual problems I have worked with over the years with, with couples well, I can't say all, that's a generalization, but many of them have been around navigating his, her needs, her needs. And women tend to not be very familiar, especially if they grew up in a Christian, don't do it because it's not so obvious for us. For men, they're having erections, they're having nocturnal emissions, even if they're not masturbating, which most of us do, and most men do, and, you know, many women do. I guess that's a public confession. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we're normalizing all the things. Exactly. But it's also okay if you don't. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Anyway, so I chose to post it on our Facebook today for our organization, you know, saying the first, the rule number one for women's sexual health is know how to pleasure yourself because only then can you adequately teach your partner because truly men are not going to come into a relationship with a woman knowing how to please her. They don't, they're built anatomically differently. And it's much, women's sexuality is much more subtle and mysterious than male sexuality. And so men, it's all pretty out there and evident, right? Right. You know, it's like, it's not a, it's not a mystery. Whereas with women, it's much more mysterious and it takes a lot more finesse in many cases, to find that pleasure and satisfaction. And so a lot of couples' struggles are around it being hard for a man to learn how to please a woman. It's not usually the case the other way around. I mean, sometimes, but not most of the time. So from a practical perspective, then, like, how as, for example, a single person, say, say if you believe, like, masturbation is a sin, how do you reconcile yourself with your sexuality? Like, what are some practical tips? Or even for like women, you know, one of the reasons we want to start this podcast too was hearing stories about women who are raised and steeped in such a purity culture and then they get married and they can't have sex without vomiting. You know, so like, how can you, if you've had the shame over and over and over Mm -hmm. and over again, and your self-worth is based on, your purity and everything like that. What are some practical tips to become a more whole person mm-hmm. and embrace your sexuality? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the points in there that's complicated is if you do believe that masturbation is a sin, there you're kind of done because pretty much from the time you're sexually aware until you get married, you're always trying to manage it. And so I would say, Theologically, that's a complicated issue that one would need to, I don't know what to say, except that as a therapist and as a theologically trained person, I do not view masturbation as a sin. But if you are raised in that kind of culture and you're holding on to that value, I actually guess I don't have any good (laughs) advice Uh, because I think that's actually part of a repressive 
theology that has been prevalent since Eve ate the apple, I guess, that women's sexuality is dangerous and it should be contained. And actually, that's the message about the church, the conservative church has about a lot of sexuality, both male and female. But there tends to be more kind of, well, he's just a guy. There's a different value system even within the church for men and women yeah. mm-hmm. that is problematic and complicates women's experience mm-hmm. because we're responsible for male sexuality. I mean, we've all heard the stories about the camp, right? Girls have to wear, you know, mm-hmm. they're not wearing the right swimsuit. They better wear a thick T-shirt over their swim clothes because mm-hmm. we don't want to cause our brothers to stumble. Mm-hmm. But the guys can walk around with their shorts slung low with their pubic hair showing and nobody's telling them to cover it up. Right. So yeah. I think there's that. So I, I don't think I answered your question maybe as well as <laughs> yeah. I might have, but no, no, that's okay. So, I mean, I think, um, since I'm coming from a Catholic background, mm. so the theology, I yeah. mean, maybe it could definitely be looked at as, uh, you know, the oppressors are mm-hmm. trying to op- oppress women, but if from someone who, I mean, if you look at the theology, just the way that it's set out, it's mm. the, it's the idea that sexuality is made for another, and yeah. so you're not fully expressing your sexuality unless mm-hmm. you're looking at the good of the other, and you're in itself giving because mm-hmm. that's the way that God's yeah. love is imaged. So, mm. so that would be the concern, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of just that that masturbation is an inherently selfish act because mm-hmm. it's not oriented towards the mm-hmm. other. It's just interesting to think about Jesus as being fully human. And I hope this is not irreverent, but a guy friend who's just totally great Christian guy, just very in love with God, but he was like, I wonder if Jesus ever masturbated just mm-hmm. because yeah. he's a full human being. Yeah. I do but apo- I, I don't think so. No, and I, I, don't, I do apologize that if that is... Uh, <laughs> well, this is going to a level that is very interesting, but I would yeah. say... I would say, actually, this is probably another conversation. Yes. You know? Yeah, but we're, we're going to... I don't want to go too far into my own views, but I do believe that the challenge then is if someone chooses to remain celibate and chaste and not masturbate until they get married, is to give themselves the permission when they do mm-hmm. to self-explore and become their own expert on their sexuality mm-hmm. so that they can then teach their partner, mm-hmm. their their spouse. Mm-hmm. You know, because that is, I mean, I do think it's beautiful. And actually, you know, I think there's a problem. The The opposite problem is the free-for-all. So mm-hmm. this talk about the other side of is it is very selfish. And yeah. pornography and yeah. sexual addiction and increasing numbers of women with sexual addiction. And the reason the boundaries are healthy around if you're going to self-pleasure, to be very mindful of what it's about that it's not just this free for all because then yeah. it becomes about self comfort and self soothing yeah. and dealing with emotions and shame. Right. And I, I think there's a healthy middle ground between the two that is probably what the church in general hasn't been able to find because yeah. the fear is right. the extreme. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do with, if you do prescribe that it's okay to do self exploratory, you know, just for the purpose of helping your future lover help you, help them help you, (laughs) then it is a slippery slope to some degree because then you can get extreme and you can 
if it's compulsory, you yes, know, that's exactly. definitely where you're kind of towing the line of addiction even, um, which I don't know. I'm sure that we can have a separate conversation about all of this. Yeah. I actually would really love to. Yeah. Uh, I, I did want to say that uh, I've been reading a lot of Dr. Lehman, Kevin Lehman. He writes several great books of just sex between married couples. Um, he's, he is, I'm sure you've heard of it. He, he wrote um, sheet music and uh, sex begins in the kitchen, but he's great because he's very un- unapologetic of, he's Christian, very unapologetic of, of, humans being very sexual beings he does have this philosophy of helping your lover by knowing what helps you receive pleasure and Mm so I just appreciate that because within like the couple's context and I know that maybe not everybody will have sex within marriage for example but Mm -hmm. I, I think that he's helping dissipate this sense of shame or secrecy behind sexuality yeah. and, and opening that up for even yourself mm-hmm. and then to also have a healthy conversation with your spouse yeah it's interesting because even as mary ashley was bringing her view saying from the catholic perspective you know i could even feel the inklings of shame inside of me <laughs> that i'm taking such a strong position about women's empowerment around their sexuality because of the problems i've seen as a result of those limits and boundaries being set in very unhealthy ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important, just an example of how subtle shame is Mm -hmm. that I know, and I want to honor and respect diversity. And so not wanting to cause offense to another person and to really value that. And yet to also hold on to my own, strong opinion about what is needed for women to empower them. And I think that's an example of how subtle shame is, Mm -hmm. especially around the conversations of sexuality, because it does evoke a lot of feeling. Anyway, just wanted to note that, (laughs) as that's part of why these conversations are difficult to have. Right. And therefore, very important to have. Yeah. Yeah. Which segues well into the culture of silence in the church and how repression plays into our distrust of the church and why this is a huge problem mm-hmm. when we can't trust our what is meant to be our safe haven. Mm-hmm. And I know we talked a little bit about maybe the differences of having church in LA, for example, but just generally the church not being able to talk about this mm-hmm. sort of thing and not to be able, not being on the forefront of sexuality for mm-hmm. example if god created sex for marriage should we not be the ones that are hailing it as the greatest thing versus learning from film or tv mm-hmm. etc about our own sexuality when it should be scripture and not specifically the church but you know scripture and mm-hmm. the church encouraging us to look towards god for our sexuality and our fulfillment in that realm do you have any thoughts on that and just the repression that we're experiencing yeah. from church? Well, I think it goes back to shame. You know, the, the three things that Brene Brown says in her research, extensive research about shame, is that everybody has it. Nobody wants to talk about it, mm. which is actually why shame is so powerful. And that the secrecy and the silence are how shame gains its power. Mm. And so I yeah. think when it comes to the church, And any topic that is vulnerable, there is 
shame doesn't want us to talk about it. Yeah. Um, Kurt Thompson says, shame does evil's dirty work by wow. disintegrating our relationship with God, causing us to want to run away and hide from God, disintegrating our relationships with one another, and disintegrating our relationship with ourselves. And I think that the problem in the church is that we're trying to deal with shame and inner dissonance and the darkness by kind of covering over it with a nice cloak of love and gospel, but we're not really willing to get messy and go into the darkness with people and talk about these things that are uncomfortable. And I think that it's having these conversations and feeling uncomfortable is really what churches need to be willing to create space to hold the tension of uncomfortable things and to let people be, especially adults, be sorting through it themselves and have their own take responsibility um, and not just be about following someone else's rules about what's right and what's wrong. I don't know if I've answered your question, but... I, I think that you definitely spoke to this idea of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And what Mary Ashley and I always say about this podcast is we want to offer a platform where people know that stories are being told and perhaps yes. their story is being told. Mm-hmm. And what I appreciate and that about they're not alone, and that they're not yeah. alone specifically for that. Yeah. And as you were saying, those three points that Brene Brown says about shame, yeah. one of them being secrecy, mm-hmm. being something that holds us to the darkness, mm-hmm. and very biblically, it's this idea of confessing to one another. And I'm not saying you know necessarily going to a confessional or saying right. in front of a church, but at least bringing those secrets to light and for a lot and for not letting those secrets hold us captive and a friend of mine for a long time we reflect back on just this relationship that she had and she just wouldn't tell me and our other best friend anything about it and then once it ended and all of it was coming out she was realizing how destructive that was Mm -hmm. because one it was causing her to feel all the shame and this anxiety because she wasn't telling the people in her life that she should have been trusting. And it also put a distance in our relationship because Mm -hmm. it felt like she couldn't trust us for whatever reason. And if the church is doing that, if we are not allowing for a platform where we are okay with airing out our dirty laundry, Mm -hmm. then how can anyone feel safe if they feel like in, in retribution, which is going to feel shame or judged Mm -hmm. or, or whatever. Um, what I do appreciate about my church, Ecclesia in Hollywood, is that you know, we started, and we I guess we've done this for a long time, and I'm sure many churches do this, but I, I love that people come up and tell their stories, mm-hmm. and our pastor is very adamant about people telling their stories, because mm-hmm. stories is what holds culture together in a way. It's transmitting culture. Yeah. It's teaching each other exactly about constructions of how we think about certain things socially or otherwise and it it gives us the responsibility I suppose as storytellers to make sure those the truth is told regardless Mm -hmm. and you can't tell truthful stories without the darkness because that's just kind of 
humanity. But it even starts, I think, within ourselves, oh, of conquering the inner shame and being willing Amen. to look at your own wounds and let Amen. God into those wounds. Amen. Amen. The antidote for shame is really love. And, you know, Kurt Thompson talks about that creativity and connection. We're made for connection, creativity, and contribution. And that shame is the, is the affective thing that will keep us from all three of those things. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we need to retell our stories from the perspective of being loved and mm-hmm. being God's delighting in us, Finding a, a better story and writing a better story about who we are is is really the gospel, I think, in many ways. And it's where the dark and the, the shameful places of our lives are no longer, it's not that they're not painful anymore, but they don't hold the power over us. Mm-hmm. I think one of my most powerful telling my stories has been talking about my date, my rape experience when I was in graduate school. And recognizing that I'm part of a very high number of women who've experienced some sort of sexual violence in various forms. And that as a woman, you know, I'm vulnerable in that way. And as women, we have to be wise and responsible. And I think that's one of the, the, the dangers of kind of the the culture of freedom and, you know, hooking up and these random, like, you know, meet a guy at a bar and go make out is that we are vulnerable. We're still the, we're physically almost always going to be overpowered by a man. And yet we choose to put ourselves in risky situations sometimes. And then the role that you know, another topic for another time is, you know, the whole issue of alcohol and the free for all, even in the church, I see with people just, there's kind of some excessive drinking going on in Christian communities these days. And I'm like, that's puzzling because it didn't used to be that way when I was a young adult. Mary Ashley and I are just And I, I, I think, you know, that is interesting. And then it, you know, it, it, it disables our ability to think clearly. And I think, there's so much work for us to do in terms of reclaiming our goodness and our belovedness um, and learning how to take full responsibility for our own sexual well-being within whatever value system we're in. Mm-hmm. So knowing we're beloved is, is really the critical piece for, for making better decisions and choices. want to restate the the thing that you said about retelling our stories from a perspective of knowing we're loved. I think that is just so powerful because all of us have these stories of regrets, but if we can look back on them and replay it in the perspective of how God loves Mm -hmm. us and loved us through it, Mm -hmm. it can be so healing, I think. I'm just going to have to sit on that for a second because that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And even in the moment, you know, because like you mm-hmm. said, that the shame, the familiar shame comes right. back when you have those triggers. Right. And it's so it's so subconscious. You know, I, I know I have that same feeling like when I send my writing out for notes or like I do improv. And so like when I have a bad improv show or, you know, like when I yeah. get up on the stage and I'm like, no one's laughing at this mm-hmm. line that I think is super yeah. funny, you know, <laughs> um, 
But I know that my brain just goes to that automatic repeat, you know, like, oh, well, obviously this means that I'm worthless and (laughs) worth nothing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so even taking a step back and say like, well, how would I think or act if I knew absolutely and completely that I was loved for, if I knew for a fact, like I wouldn't even have those thoughts, you know, and just even changing in the moment, but it's so hard. Yeah, well, and I suspect we would have those thoughts, or at least I would still have those thoughts, but we'd be really quick at interrupting the story and going, mm-hmm. oh, that's shame. Yeah, right. And and to recognize that that's probably going to be with us, but we right. get better at mm, observing it and kind of letting it go. We become better observers mm-hmm. of our experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not being yeah. so changed yeah. by them, by, by those. And and I think, you know, if I can end with my story Please, about yeah. about being raped, the miraculous thing about that was in the midst of it, I had made bad choices that night. I had drank too much. I had chosen to get in a car and be with somebody I shouldn't have. I, I wouldn't have if I hadn't have had too many drinks. And when that episode was happening, you know, and I was fighting him off trying to prevent this from happening. Because I knew God's love at that point in my life, I I really knew how loved I was and that there was nothing I could do that could make God love me less and nothing I could do that would make God love me more. That did not end up becoming, you know, I, I, the next morning, I called the rape crisis hotline. I went to the hospital. I reported it to the police. I, you know, I I knew, no, I did never give this guy permission to do that, you know, and, and really made a stance on that. And I think it's knowing we're loved and knowing our value and our worth is what enables us to set boundaries and make good, better decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's really what heals the part of us that makes the poor decisions. And God's love helping us learn how to soothe ourselves in healthier ways and learning how to cope with shame and dissonance by being in authentic relationships with other people. And I would say that, you know, the, the, the reason people need therapy is because we don't know how to be healers to one another. And I think the more we can create communities where people can hear and honor one another's stories and be vulnerable together that's really what the church and you know like aa 12-step programs really are are a wonderful example of what the church has produced because the people that started that program came out of you know christian backgrounds and took a powerful thing about confessing and sharing our struggles and telling our stories and so that's the story i would want people to hear is that no matter what you do, no matter what you've done, no matter what you think about yourself, God loves you. And there's nothing you can do to change that reality and to rest, to find the ability to rest and trust in God's love for us, period. I think that is a wonderful way to end it. And I love that I can hear the laughter of children just in the ambiance. It's fantastic. And that's also such a good reminder when we're talking about other people and 
are whenever we're tempted to judge them like mm-hmm. if we can look at them first as a being that's loved by god Amen. rather than like well you <laughs> you're horrible <laughs> and yeah. you make bad decisions mm-hmm. you, you know that's a great point i think yeah. we can learn to forgive better mm-hmm. and have more grace for people because as god has had grace for us mm-hmm. sissy this has been wonderful we would love have you back to talk yeah. about any other other things that we kind of tangentially talked about yeah. but thank you again so much mm-hmm. this has been sissy rogers is is there websites and other things that we can find you yeah on? our nonprofit website is aliveandwellwomen.org okay and that would be a great resource if people are interested in community around these issues and then um my website is sissybradyrogers.com Yeah, it's great being here and talking with you, and we'll look forward to another conversation. I hope so. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to our podcast. This has been another episode of Fishers of Men. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com or find us on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also on Facebook under Fishers of Men. Follow us on Twitter at at LA Gone Fishing or on Instagram at Fishers of Men Podcast. There is an underscore after each word. Please also remember to rate and make comments on iTunes if you feel so inclined. It's really important so that other people can discover our podcast. I'm Larson Mary Sams. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. Until next time, keep swimming.